Episode 66. Two years ago at 3 a.m., growls came from the brush alongside me. Not a dog. Do we have black coyotes? Nope. It is a doggy. Greetings and welcome into the Patuxent General. This week takes us hip deep into spring, the area completely in bloom. Slowly, the village is putting on its glad rags, waiting for another warm season. While we do, let's take a look at some Rhode Island staples, clam bake, and our drink, the Rhode Island Red Cocktail. Then we'll get really scary with the Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft. But first, I must thank our Patreon subscribers. These growth-embracing folks are the jelly beans, multicolored peeps, chocolate-filled eggs, tricolored daffodils, and lawnmowers that is spring at the Patuxent General, without whom we'd be left in the cold wind. So thank you! If you would like to become one of these life-affirming people, you can join for as little as $3 a month to show your support for our little podcast, as well as getting updates, ad-free content, and surprise photos and recipes. You can look for our page on patreon.com or simply follow the link in the show notes. So thank you. I'm ready for some clam cakes. Kenyon Mill makes clam cake mix that can be shipped all over the world and is made in Rhode Island's own grist mill. What is a grist mill? Let's ask Kenyon Mill themselves. They say, A grist mill is a grain mill that turns whole berries of grain or whole kernels of corn into meal or flour. At Kenyon's Grist Mill, we do it the old-fashioned way and continue to use the original granite millstones quarried from westerly Rhode Island. These huge stones produce exceptional texture and quality not found in modern steel-ground flowers. Single-pass stone grinding also preserves the vital natural nutrition of the grains. Kenyon's offers the ingredients that health-conscious consumers are searching for. Ground the simple, old-fashioned ways of long ago. We encourage you to read about the difference between genuine stone ground products and steel ground products in our local history. You can find this information on their website. Kenyon Mill had this to say about their history. Our building is nestled on the banks of the Queens River in the village of Osquapog. We are the oldest manufacturing business in Rhode Island and the second oldest continually operating business in the state. Although our current building dates back to 1886, we've been grinding meals and flours continuously on site since 1696. In the old days, farmers would bring their corn or grist to be ground. The miller usually received a portion of the meal as payment. C.D. Kenyon, who purchased the mill in 1909, saw the potential for selling ground meal. He began to brand it in sacks with a Kenyon name and made it available for everyone. The grain was transported as far away as Providence by horse and buggy and delivered to various markets throughout the state. 
1916, the company bought a Model T truck, which made the deliveries easier. This made it possible to satisfy the growing demand for Johnny Cake Meal, which then extended to the entire state of Rhode Island and parts of Connecticut and Massachusetts. Everyone in Rhode Island has a clam cake story, from the first time they had one, to the hangover clam cake and chowder, to the first date chowder and clam cakes in Point Judith, not to mention generations of families who were committed to the ritual of spending the day at the beach, then having dinner at the picnic tables while fighting off seagulls, while their kids dipped clam cakes into chowder which may or may not fall over the table to the glee of the seagulls. So, check out clam cakes at Aunt Carrie's in person or have Kenyon Mills send you clam cake mix to make your own. But either way, join us making clam cakes and chowder, which is episode 15 if you want to do the combo, which is how we sell it for an appetizer here. Three clam cakes and a cup of chowder. However, if you are ordering for a date, you each get a pint of chowder and split a dozen clam cakes. Then, eat them in the parking lot while watching the boats come in. Or, watch the seagrass blow behind Aunt Carrie's. Either way, it is a very romantic and also comforting end to a sandy, salty day at the beach in Rhode Island. The story of Aunt Carrie's goes like this. Carrie Cooper and her husband Ulysses lived in Connecticut and enjoyed riding to Narragansett with their six children cramped in a Model T. They came to fish, swim, and camp out on the beach. Ulysses talked about the fact that there was no place in Point Judith to get anything cold to drink. Soon the family started selling cold lemonade to the local fishermen and nearby campers. Brought up on a farm, Carrie always made use of everything. The children would bring clams to her and she would make a chowder. Her original corn fritter recipe soon became her clam cake recipe. Of course, the smell would travel to all the other campers and fishermen around. Every time she made some, someone would stop and ask her what she was making. And of course, the more people who tasted them, the more she would have to make. Ulysses thought, maybe they should try selling clam cakes and chowder along with their lemonade. A small stand was built down near where the Point Judith Lighthouse stands now. Ulysses brought the property where the restaurant is now located, and the restaurant was built in 1920. The counter area and the front dining room is the original building, and over several years, the building grew. And how did Aunt Carrie's get its name? Well, besides their six children, lots of nieces and nephews came along to the beach. Someone always seemed to be calling, Aunt Carrie! It soon became known as Aunt Carrie's. Over the years, many of Carrie's relatives have worked here. The white-haired lady most of you think of as Aunt Carrie was actually her daughter, Gertrude. Gertrude married William Foy, who worked at the restaurant while his family camped here during the summers. And Gertrude and William took over the restaurant in 1953, when her father, Ulysses, died and her mother retired. The kitchen was then expanded to its present size. And in 1964, Aunt Carrie died. In 1984, the next generation, son Bill and daughter-in-law Elsie, with the help of Gertrude and William, took over. William died in 1991, and Gertrude died in 1997. Many of you will remember William as the bald gentleman who worked in the middle of the kitchen. In 1994, Bill died. Elsie now runs the restaurant with her two daughters, Aunt Carrie's fourth generation, and a wonderful staff. 
But to make your own fabulous batch of Rhode Island clam cakes, you will need one bag of Kenyon's clam cake and fritter mix, one can of Kenyon's chopped quahogs, which is 15 ounces, and one and one quarter cups water. Mix the ingredients and stir the batter until moist. Do not overmix. And then drop the batter in a deep fryer for 350 degrees. Turning gently for three to five minutes. Drain on absorbent paper. For best results, all ingredients should be at room temperature. Yields roughly three to four dozen delicious fritters. Kenyon says, this very popular mix is what we serve up at various fairs, including the Big E. Try this tasty Kenyan specialty at home and experience the best clam cakes imaginable. Make your clam cakes small and they will take less time to cook and absorb less oil. Enjoy! And now for our drink, the Rhode Island Red Cocktail. I had no idea this drink existed, but now that I know, I'm in. And although invented in California, it definitely shows bi-coastal love. For this refreshing drink, you will need 16 fresh raspberries, four ounces of tequila, one ounce of Chambord, one and a half ounce of lemon juice, some bitters, six ounces of ginger beer, and some fresh mint. Add all ingredients except raspberries and ginger beer to a shaker and fill with crushed ice. Shake and then strain evenly into two tall glasses filled with fresh ice. Muddle your raspberries in a bowl and add evenly to each cocktail. Then mix gently and top with a splash of ginger beer. Garnish with fresh mint sprigs and a lemon twist if desired. Cheers to Rhode Island! The other version that I found of this drink also called for a half an ounce of agave nectar. Try both and let me know what you think. Our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. Enjoy while listening to our spine-tingling reading of Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft.
I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. And now in our House on the Corner series, the continued reading of The Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft. In the morning, I questioned all the servants and found that none of them had noticed anything unusual, save that the cook remembered the actions of a cat that had rested on her windowsill. This cat had howled at some unknown hour of the night, a waking cook in time for her to see him dart purposefully out the open door down the stairs. I drowsed away the noontime, and in the afternoon called again on Captain Norris, who became exceedingly interested in what I had told him. The odd incidents, so slight and yet so curious, appealed to his sense of the picturesque, and elicited from him a number of reminiscences of local ghostly lore. We were genuinely perplexed at the presence of the rats, and Norris lent me some traps in Paris Green, which I had the servants place in strategic localities when I returned. I retired early, being very sleepy, but was harassed by dreams of the most horrible sort. I seemed to be looking down from an immense height upon a twilight grotto, knee-deep in filth, where a white-bearded demon swineherd drove about with his staff a flock of fungus, flabby beasts whose appearance filled me with unutterable loathing. Then, as the swineherd paused and nodded over his task, a mighty swarm of rats rained down on the stinking abyss and fell to devouring beasts and man alike. From this terrific vision, I was abruptly awakened by the motions of the black cat who had been sleeping as usual across my feet. This time, I did not have to question the source of his snarls and hisses, and of the fear which made him sink his claws into my ankle, unconscious of their effect. For on every side of the chamber, the walls were alive with nauseous sound, the verminous slithering of ravenous gigantic rats. Now there was no aurora to shew the state of the arras, the fallen section of which had been replaced, but I was not too frightened to switch on the light. As the bulbs leapt into radiance, I saw a hideous shaking all over the tapestry, causing the somewhat peculiar designs to execute a singular dance of death. This motion disappeared almost at once, and the sound with it. Springing out of bed, I poked at the arras with the long handle of the warming pan that rested near, and lifted one section to see what lay beneath. There was nothing but the patched stone wall, and even the cat had lost its tense realization of abnormal presences. When I examined the circular trap that had been placed in the room, I found all of the openings sprung, though no trace remained of what had been caught and had escaped. Further sleep was out of the question, so, lighting a candle, I opened the door and went out into the gallery toward the stairs to my study. 
the black cat following at my heels. But before we had reached the stone steps, however, the cat darted ahead of me and vanished down the ancient flight. As I descended the stairs myself, I became aware, suddenly, of sounds in the great room below. Sounds of a nature which could not be mistaken. The oak-paneled walls were alive with rats, scampering and milling, whilst the black cat was racing about in a fury of a baffled hunter. Reaching the bottom, I switched on the light, which did not, this time, cause the noise to subside. The rats continued their riot, stampeding with such force and distinctiveness that I could finally assign to their motions a definite direction. These creatures in numbers apparently inexhaustible were engaged in one stupendous migration from inconceivable heights to some depth conceivably or inconceivably below. I now heard steps in the corridor, and in another moment two servants pushed open the massive door. They were searching the house for some unknown source of disturbance, which had thrown all the cats into a snarling panic, and caused them to plunge precipitously down several flights of stairs and squat yowling before the closed door to the subcellar. I asked them if they had heard the rats, but they all replied in the negative. And when I turned to call their attention to the sound in the panels, I realized that the noise had ceased. With the two men, I went down to the door of the subcellar and found the cats already dispersed. Later, I resolved to explore the crypt below, but for the present, I merely made a round of the traps. All were sprung, yet all were tenantless. Satisfying myself that no one heard the rats save the felines and me, I sat in my study till morning, thinking profoundly and recalling every scrap of legend I had unearthed concerning the building I inhabited. I slept some in the afternoon, leaning back in the one comfortable library chair which my medieval plan of furnishing could not banish. Later, I telephoned to Captain Norris, who came over and helped me explore the subcellar. Absolutely nothing untoward was found, although we could not express a thrill at the knowledge that the vault was built by Roman hands. Every low arch and massive pillar was Roman, not the debased Romanesque of the bungling Saxons, but the severe and harmonious classicism of the age of Caesars. Indeed, the walls abounded with inscriptions familiar to the antiquarians who had repeatedly explored the place. Pigete prop, temp, donna, la prec, versus pontifi, atis. The reference to Attis made me shiver, for I had read Catullus and knew something of the hideous rites of the Eastern god, whose worship was so mixed up with that of Sabil. Norris and I, by the light of lanterns, tried to interpret the odd and nearly effaced designs on certain irregularly rectangular blocks of stone, generally held to be altars, but could make nothing of them. We remembered that one pattern, a sort of rayed sun, was held by students to imply a non-Roman origin, suggesting that those altars had been merely adopted by the Roman priests from some older and perhaps aboriginal temple on the same site. On one of these blocks were some brown stains that made me wonder. The largest, in the center of the room, had certain features on the upper surface which indicated its connection with fire, probably burnt offerings. Such were the sights in the crypt before whose door the cats had howled, and where Norris and I were now determined to pass the night. 
Couches were brought down by the servants, who were told not to mind any nocturnal actions of the cats, and the black cat was admitted as much for help as for companionship. We decided to keep the great oak door, a modern replica with slits for ventilation, tightly closed. And with this attended to, we retired with lanterns still burning to await whatever might occur. again for joining us at the Patuxent General. If you would like to contact us with a question, a ghost story, or have an order for the pop-up general store, our email is jess at patuxentgeneral.com. And we'd love to chat, so reach out. But until then, I'll meet you right back here next time at the Patuxent General. Something for Posterity Production, pre-recorded in Patuxent. <laughs>